good. Nick, team, thank you guys so much. Uh, my wife knows this. I always tell her how great thou art. You can remind her when I die someday if you're still around. I've told her that has to be at my funeral. Just how great thou art. And then, man, to sing about the resurrection of Jesus. We've come to worship a resurrected king today. Yes and amen? Well, we are gonna be in Isaiah 56, 57, 58, 59 today. So you can, uh, if you got your Bibles with you, you can grab that. The offering plates are going by. Let me encourage you, we're nearing the end of the fiscal year, church family, so please do. Just have a plan to give generously to your church uh, so that the work of the ministry that God has called us to collectively can continue to go forward. Please just make that a part of your a part of your walk with Jesus, that you would give back to him what he's given to you. If you are new with us, we don't want your money. Just let the plates go by. We hope that this service is a gift to you. We want to offer you something that we hope you will find meaningful and life-giving. So we're glad that you're here. So we're gonna be, like I said, in Isaiah 56, 57, 58, and 59. We're gonna do a two-parter, which is awesome because it means that like at the end, I can just go wherever, whatever I finish today, I can just go come back next week. So, which is awesome. So I'll try and find a good stopping point, but we're gonna, for the next two weeks, look at these four chapters together. They're kind of a group in the book of Isaiah, and I hope that you will find them useful and helpful to you. So I see some of you flipping, and while you're flipping, I'll tell you this, it's summer now. Are you all excited that it's summer? Yeah, I've been waiting. Kids are out of school. We're excited. We're gonna go visit Texas in a couple weeks and see the family, so we're excited about that. I also get excited every summer about the NBA Finals. Does anybody else get excited about the NBA Finals? A couple of you, it's good. Now, here's the deal. This is my admission to you. I do try to avoid doing too many sports illustrations up here because I recognize for some of you, you're like, move along. <laughs> not interested, right? So for some of you who like it, let, I just could not pass this up. Did anybody watch Game 1, Cavs Warriors? Did anybody watch? All right, so three of you will follow along with this illustration and the rest of you all just describe. Let me paint the scene for you. So Cavs Warriors, it's year four. They're meeting in the finals. There are 4.7 seconds or maybe 4.9 seconds left in game one. Uh, the Cavs are down one. It has been chaos on the court for about the last minute of the game. And so with a little, less, a little more than four seconds left, uh, the Cavs go to the free throw line. And uh, who was it? George Hill sinks the first free throw. Score is now tied, 107-107, right? And so it is, it's down to the wire. It's a nail biter. If he makes the second free throw, the Cavs will probably win the game, although you can't guarantee it, because uh, the Warriors can shoot like nobody's business, right? And so there's, there's almost no time on the clock. He misses the second free throw. He misses it. But out of nowhere, J.R. Smith grabs the rebound. He shoves Kevin Durant, let's be honest, all right? So there's a foul that's committed. But he grabs the rebound over the top of a guy who has a seven foot wingspan. He manages at six foot five, I think, to jump up and grab the rebound. Now you're thinking, you know way too much about J.R. Smith, <laughs> Kevin Durant, and it's true, I do. Grabs the rebound, and now confusion ensues because they're down one. What should he do at this moment? Shoot, shoot the ball, just shoot the ball. He takes it and just starts to dribble aimlessly around the court. <laughs> LeBron James literally looks at him like, what are you doing? Clock runs out as he throws some guy who chucks up a corner three that's no good. They go to overtime and lose by 10. The Warriors just dominate the overtime. Some, now, some of you are like, yeah, again, I don't care. But this was too good because here's, here's, what I, here's what I thought about immediately after, and this will give you more insight into like the way my brain works. I immediately thought, 
we are a lot like J.R. Smith sometimes. Followers of Jesus in our cultural day and age are a lot like J.R. Smith. We have no concept sometimes what the situation is. We are dribbling aimlessly around the court as if the clock is not running out and we're not sure, are we down by one, are we tied? What is happening right now? I don't know. And we just put our head down and get real scared and, and just dribble around and time runs out on us. Now here, I have felt, I have felt a lot, I think over the last couple months, like J.R. Smith. I'll admit it, I have felt a lot like J.R. Smith. As I have, I have been spending the last several months just really thinking, reading, praying, processing, and asking the question, what, what does a church in our day and age need to be like in order to actually be effective at ministering the gospel? What does a church have to do in our cultural context? Because with each generation, things change, right? And so the way a church could be effective 50 years ago is different than the way a church needs to be to be effective now. Now, there are things that are constant, right? There are things, biblical preaching is a constant. Like, you can never let go of that. Prayer is a constant. You always have to be a praying church if you want to be effective at ministering the gospel, right? Walking in the power of the Holy Spirit is a constant. You just have to do it if you want to be effective ministers of the gospel, but what I found myself thinking a lot over these last couple months is what, what is it that is, you know, what is our situation? Like what is it in our cultural context where we live, and I, don't, I, I mean mainly our country, I mean mainly the West, America. Like what, is, what is it that shapes the world in which we live, the environment in which we live? And because those things shape the environment in which we live, what is it that we need to, to be like in order to be effective at ministering the gospel in that type of a context? Now, we've talked a bit about that. Now, here's my admission to you, okay? This is probably poor leadership. But I've been thinking about this for months and kind of processing it, kind of preparing to have this conversation with staff and elders. <clears throat> and lo and behold, this week, I get into Isaiah 56, 57, 58, start to do my prep work for the sermon, and I realize it is pointing me in the direction of talking about this exact stuff without having talked about it with my staff team first or the elders first. So this is just, you're gonna get a sermon that's a bit of me in process. Is that okay? Is that okay? All right, good, awesome, fantastic. So I, I don't think anything I'm gonna tell you is not true, but I'm just telling you it's a bit in process. This, we're gonna talk today about the kind of church that we need to be about the kind of church, in light of the circumstance and the context in which we live, what is the kind of church that we need to be in order to be effective ministers of the gospel? And I wanna give you eight things. Now, like I said, we're gonna break this over two weeks, so I wanna kinda introduce the concept, cover two of them this week, and cover the last six next week, because I won't have to do as much introductory work to kinda get the, get the idea in our heads, okay? So what this means is cancel your vacation plans for next week if you're gonna be gone. No, I'm just kidding. All right, so let's start with this. Let's start with this, and then we're gonna, we're gonna dive into the word, and we're gonna look through these chapters. Let's start with this idea of understanding our cultural context. Now, again, as Amanda and I were talking about this, she was really helpful to me in reminding me. Remember, in America, we, we really are, we have a prevailing culture, but that culture is made up of a bunch of subcultures, right? So there are so many different groups and ways of thinking that operate within our cultural sphere that to say we have one sort of homogenous culture in America is false, that's not really accurate. But there are, with all these groups that exist within our country's context, I do think there are a few things that sort of rise to the surface that, and I think philosophers, sociologists tend to agree, that in this cultural moment, at this moment in history, really do shape the way 
we operate in our context. And so I wanna, I, I'll tell you what I think those five things are. And again, you're not gonna find this in any book. Uh, this, is, this is sort of straight from the processing brain of Trent, okay? So here are the things. The philosophies and realities that most create the grid by which we in America assign value and meaning in life. That's what culture is, by the way. Culture, like if you're thinking this is such a nebulous idea, like what is culture? Culture is really the combination of the way a lot of people talk about it is to say it's the acts and the artifacts. In other words, the things we produce, things we do, the, the art we produce, the things we produce. It's the acts and it's the artifacts that, that create shared meaning for us as a people group. So any group of people assigns value and meaning and purpose in life some way. They figure out a way to do that and then they express that purpose and that shared sense of meaning through the things they create, their artifacts, and through the things that they do, their acts. And so when you talk about culture, that's what culture is. If that's like, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it, it doesn't matter that much, okay? That's just what culture is. So how do we create this sense of shared meaning? Well, there are five things, five philosophies and slash realities that I think more than any other thing shape the way we think about life and meaning in our context. And I don't just mean the church, I mean now broadly the place we live. And they are these, I think. Relativism, I think we're gonna put them up on the screen for you guys. Oh, we might need to take, put them on a black screen if we can. Uh, relativism, individualism, materialism, racial division, and sexual freedom of expression. I think those five things, more than any other thing, shape the way we think about life and meaning. And let me give you quick definitions. These are sort of fast and dirty definitions here, more than academic, right? So relativism, what is relativism? Well, it's this idea. It's the idea that there are no overarching truths. There is no one narrative from which we all derive a sense of meaning and purpose, right? So there's no overarching truths. There is no truth that applies to all people at all times. That's what it means to believe in an absolute, right? If I say something is absolutely true, what I'm saying is I think it applies to all people at all times, regardless of their place in the world or their, the timeline in which they've lived, where they've lived in history. I'm saying that there is something that applies to everyone at all times. Now, to be a follower of Jesus means to believe that there are things, do you recognize that? That there are things that are not relative to when we live or where we live. They are absolutely true for all people at all times. Did you agree with that? We believe that. In general, our culture is shaped by this idea of relativism, that that is not true. That there are things, that, 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 that truth is essentially something that is not overarching and there is nothing actually that applies to all people at all times. So that's relativism. Individualism is the belief that personal freedom is more important than the good of the collective. Personal freedom is more important than the good of the collective. Now let me just say, that with many of these things, there are good things as well as bad things with them. You recognize when you think about individualism that there are, when you think about certain cultures and societies that have existed in the past, particularly in maybe the Eastern Hemisphere, you think about sort of the, the challenge that comes with not believing in any individual freedom, right? Where the, the group, the collective, just defines everything for somebody. You can see how that could be oppressive, can't you? That could be difficult. And so, there's some thankfulness that we should have that we live in a somewhat individualistic society, that there are personal freedoms that are afforded to us. But individualism run rampant is the idea, right? The, the sort of um, liberal individualism that, that comes about is the idea that essentially personal freedom always, at all times, trumps any sort of sense of the good of the collective or the group, right? So that 
essentially you can, you can see how when you combine relativism and individualism, you get kind of a tough environment. You get a place where everybody goes, I will determine my own truth and no one ever tells me what I should or shouldn't believe and I can do whatever it is I deem to be good and right and true regardless of what you think about what is good and right and true. Hard, hard situation to live in, honestly, to figure out how do you flesh out how to live together in a society. Okay, I can tell I'm boring you already. I'm not gonna keep boring you forever. Here we go, all right? Materialism, probably no surprise there. A good life, here's how I would define that. Again, fast, dirty definition. A good life is acquired through consumption and comfort. That's what the essence of materialism is. The belief that a good life is acquired through consumption and comfort. The acquisition of those things, right? Which is a great challenge. Amanda and I have been thinking a lot about this, about what does it look like for us as a family to shape our family life around things other than consumption. Have you ever thought about how much you consume as a family? Wow, it's so challenging when you stop and think about how much, and I don't just mean like food consumption, right? That may be another problem, right? But, I, but just consumption of entertainment, of television, of internet, consumption of uh, you know, whatever it is. Do we produce anything? I think is a question our family is asking a little bit. Like, do we produce things or do we just consume things? And how do we define what is good in life and how do we, how do we set our kids up to believe that good is not found primarily in life through consumption of something? And here, I mean, here's the reality, is we have often, I don't mean necessarily just, just this church, I mean the church in America, has reinforced this quite often because rather than saying, like, what's it gonna take to help someone who doesn't know Jesus come to know Jesus, we just figure out ways to be more appealing to people who are at other churches and try and get them to come to our church so that we grow the size of our church. And you know, if we're honest, we're not doing anything of much value there. But when, when we do that, we, we, what we're doing is we're training you to consume a product when you come here, more than we are training you to be disciples, to be equipped to go out and represent Jesus and say, look, I, I know a savior who's better, he's better, right? And so we, we don't wanna do that. We don't wanna, we, so we don't wanna live as if the good life is found through consumption and through comfort. So that's relativism, individualism, materialism. Now the next two are not philosophies, those are all philosophies, they're ideas, right, you get that. They're ideas, they're ways of thinking. But the last two are just, I think, cultural realities, situations that define how life is. Racial division, which I think is brought about by, I mean, if I had to kind of give, again, just a quick snippet of that, I would say it's people, it's the belief that people who share my physical and social qualities that's how race is defined, a group of people who share the same physical and social qualities. So people who share my physical and social qualities are more important than or superior to those who share yours. That's really at the heart of a lot of racial division. And then lastly, sexual freedom of expression. Now beginning in the 1960s, we encountered in our society what we call the sexual revolution. Yes, some of you were around for that. And, and with that, and then you combine with the sexual revolution of the 60s, you combine with that a growing individualism and growing relativism, and you end up in a, in a situation where probably the chief, the chief freedom that we cling to as a society is the freedom to sexually express ourselves in any way that we deem fit, to express any sexual desire that I have. So sexual freedom of expression might sound like this. The fulfillment of any and all sexual desires is central to a good life. The fulfillment of any and all sexual desires that I experience is central to a good life. 
Now you could quibble with that, you could argue with it. I think those five things shape the context where we live. I think they shape our cultural sense of what is meaningful, purposeful, and where value is found in life. And like I said, you could probably add some to that list. You might take something off and add something, you know, and say, I would add this over that. That's okay, this is not, this is not, um, this is not the Bible. This is just a sense of what shapes our culture, okay? Now here, of course, the second question that comes with it is the one I've already said is if these five things shape the culture in which we live, then what does a church have to be in order to minister effectively in that context? And the answer is found in Isaiah 56. Believe it or not, writing in the 700s BC to a group of people prophetically that were going to live in the 500s BC, Isaiah has some things to say that are absolutely pertinent to our day and our age. And here's what's interesting. If you told me, or at least interesting to me, if you said these five things shape our culture, what kind of church needs to, to exist that can actually make a difference in this kind of cultural environment, I would list the eight things I'm gonna show you today. And what I found to be so interesting and why I felt like I'm preaching this sermon a little bit, uh, almost prematurely, is that I got into Isaiah 56, 57, 58, 59, and I found, I think, all but one of these eight things. All but one of the eight things. And honestly, I could argue all eight uh, of these things are right here in these chapters. And I was, I was floored, but I don't know why I was floored, because God's word is amazing. And God's word is powerful. And here's what it told me. Our cultural moment is not so unique as I may have thought. Right, it reminds me our cultural moment is not, this is not the first time the world has encountered some of these challenges and difficulties. It also reminds me that there has been a constant call for the church to be these kinds of things. Now there may be specific ways that we express them in our cultural context that weren't true of Isaiah's day and age of Israel in the you know, early BCs, uh, but, but nonetheless, these things are constantly something that seem to be on God's mind, that seem to be on God's mind and on his heart. Now, here's the thing that I want you to see. Here's, here's what's gonna happen, and let me just kind of recap. Remember in Isaiah 53, we saw the work of the suffering servant. You remember this? We saw that Jesus was gonna come and suffer and die, and we saw that that was the pinnacle chapter in all of Isaiah, because everything before it pointed to this moment. God's gonna rescue you. He's gonna send a rescuer. He's gonna send a deliverer, and they're all excited, and then we find out, how is he gonna rescue? He's gonna rescue by suffering for your sin and my sin. He's gonna bear the wrath of God for sin, and we saw Jesus talked about hundreds and hundreds of years before he ever would come to live with great detailed description. It's amazing. And then as, I, as uh, Ian taught us so well last week, what comes after that in Isaiah 54 and 55 is this great invitation. Because the servant has come, you are now invited to the table of God. You are invited. Come and, and taste the sweetest of food at no cost to you. Why? because of what the servant did in Isaiah 53. Do you see how it points back? And now here's what we're gonna find. As we get into Isaiah 56, what God is gonna begin to say to his people, he's gonna go, okay, the servant has come. I'm gonna send him. He's gonna do something that's gonna allow you to be invited into my home, to be invited to sit at my table, to be invited to be my child. It's gonna be amazing. So receive the invitation. It's, it's a begging, it's a pleading. And then he's gonna turn to his people and he's gonna go, I'm inviting the world to my table. And do you know the primary way I'm gonna invite them? Is I'm gonna invite them by making you, not just you individually, but you collectively look like me. 
And as I do that, as I form you as a group, not as individuals, although individuals, yes, but, but more he's going to talk about the group. As I take this family of faith and I shape you into this kind of group of people that I want you to be, you will look so different from the world around you that when they get tired of their idols and when they get sick of their relativism and when they hate their individualism and when they start to bemoan their materialism, they will need to see a group of people who have lived differently than they have lived. And if they see that in you, they will be able to see the face of my invitation to come and sit at my table. You follow me? So here's what Isaiah 56 through 59 is all about, right? It's a simple statement, right? He wants the church, the people of God, back then, the nation of Israel, but now, in the New Testament, the church, he wants the church to be a counterculture to the culture around it. He wants it to be a culture within its own uh, family atmosphere that says, we will look different than the world around us. And as we do, we will do so with such love and humility that as people grow weary of all the damage that is done to a life through freedom of sexual expression, through racial division, through materialism, as they experience the damage and the harm, because you recognize those things cause immense damage and harm, right? When you define your life by consumption and comfort, eventually that will hurt you. That will create deep, a deep vacancy in your soul. And when that happens, there needs to be a group of people that can be looked to who did not define their existence by consumption and comfort. And there needs to be a group of people that the culture at large can look to and say, oh, they didn't think about issues of race the way I thought about issues of race. They need to be able to look at a group of people and say, they didn't, they didn't find freedom and joy and purpose in life through sexual expression of every desire they felt, they actually found it through the limitation of their expression in sexuality. And they aligned themselves with something that was true about the nature of God, and when they did, they found true freedom, and they found true joy and true peace. I, I, I want to I at least, you know, kind of go hang out and see what that's like. Now, I was listening to a story this week of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, and she's She's uh, phenomenal. I highly encourage you to listen to her sometime. Uh, she came out of a, of a lesbian lifestyle. And uh, when she did, she, one of the greatest, most helpful things I heard her say about this was, um, you know, the church was a place where I could go and I could just, they didn't call me to repent of my lesbianism as the first thing because they recognized my greatest sin was my unbelief, not my lesbian practices. I love that. That's so true. So, but, but I was so nervous and so afraid to go to a church because it just seemed like an unsafe place for me that as I got to, she had started to get to know a pastor she had a relationship with and they started a conversation. She said, for weeks, I went, I went and sat in my truck with all my bumper stickers about gay pride and everything and, and I sat outside of this church with my New York Times and my coffee and I just watched them come in and out. She's like, I stalked the church before I ever went into the church. Because I was so nervous. I was like, that's probably a freak show in there and I don't think I can go in. And she said, just bit by bit, she said, I sat in the muffler uh, shop parking lot across the street. I just sat and watched. She just wanted to get a little closer, a little closer, a little closer. See, are these people okay? Like, are they safe? And as she got to know some of those people, she began to experience a different culture, a counterculture. And she began to ask the question, what if I'm wrong? Like, what if my perception of what is good and right and true as it comes to, you know, and not just in the realm of sexual expression, but in just everything in life, 
what, what, if I've, what, if I, what if I'm wrong? What do I do now? So it's a powerful story. So those five things. Let me tell you now, if we're supposed to form a counterculture, what are those things, those eight things that a church, I think, must do to be effective for Christ in this context, defined by materialism and relativism and individualism and the things I mentioned. Here are those eight things. I'm gonna give them to you all at once, uh, and we're gonna talk about two of them today, all right? So, uh, gang, I think we're gonna throw these up on the screen here. So number one is this. It is a church that must train themselves to know and apply truth. Train themselves to know and apply truth. I'm gonna resist expounding on each one of these because I'm gonna expound later. Trent, be disciplined. Okay, good. Number two, it's a church that cares for the vulnerable. A church that cares for the vulnerable. Number three, it's a church that has deep relationships with one another. Deep relationships with one another. Not surface relationships, deep relationships. Number four, it's a church that is diverse in race, age, and economic standing. Number five, it's a church that embraces a biblical vision for sexuality. And I should probably say, and celebrates it. Number six, it's a church that practices spiritual rhythms that create margin in our lives. It's a church that practices spiritual rhythms that create margin in our lives. Number seven, it's a church that learns how to be great neighbors, that learns how to be great neighbors. The art, the, the art of neighboring. What a joy and a duty. I, lo- and I love this one. I know I'm expounding now, and I said I wouldn't. I love this one. Here's why. Because so often the gift I think that so many in the church think when you have it, so you know there are spiritual gifts, right? That when you become a believer, the Spirit enters into your life and then he gives you certain gifts and the Bible talks about those. Some are leadership, some are teaching. Those are the ones that we really value, right? We're like, ooh, leaders and teachers and ooh. And, and the gift that so often gets dismissed that I just love and think the world of because I don't have it um, is hospitality. The gift of hospitality. Anybody have the gift of hospitality? Some of you probably know that you do. I love it because it's, it, we act as if it's not important. I think one of the most important spiritual gifts that must be exercised by the church in this day and age in order for us to be effective in our culture at ministering the gospel is the gift of hospitality. And I think, so I think those of you who have that gift, you gotta lead the charge. You're gonna lead the way for us in what it looks like to be ministers of the gospel. All right, number eight. I got all the way to number seven before I went off on the rabbit trail. That, I deserve a pat on the back for that, I'm just gonna say. No, no don't clap. I'm, That was a joke. The tongue was firmly planted in the cheek. Uh, Number eight, it's a church that practices disciplines of denial. A church that practices disciplines of denial. A church that remembers that we're called to fast. I was talking about technology earlier and, you know, not defining life through consumption. So you can probably see how those eight things are all related to creating a counterculture that is not defined by individualism, that's not defined by relativism, that's not defined by materialism, that, that... takes aim at undoing some of the cultural realities of racial division and sexual freedom of expression. But given that those things shape the way we think and live, that these are the things that then we need to be and to press into. So those are the things I'm processing. Now, can we talk about the first two? Yes? Let's talk about the first two. Oh, let's remember this too. 
I, I want us to remember this because uh, this is important. Um, remember that those five things that we talked about, that they are, um, we as a church shouldn't look at them and sort of wag our finger or be afraid of those things. We should recognize that each one of them represents an opportunity. Every single one of those five things represents an opportunity for the church if the church will only not be like J.R. Smith and not have any clue what's going on around it. Right, if we know how much time's on the clock, if we know what the score is, if we, if we sort of know our situation, then we've got immense opportunity. We've got immense opportunity. It's only when we're not aware of the relativism around us, it's only when we're not aware that there's 4.7 seconds on the clock or that we're down one, if we think the score's tied, you know, that, that sort of thing, you get the metaphor. It's only when we're unaware that they don't create an opportunity and we just end up kind of being dragged along by the culture. We just sort of, we're swimming in it and so we just become those things because we weren't aware how those things were counter to a biblical life. So let's talk about the first two, that we must train ourselves to know and apply truth. Okay, look at Isaiah 56, verses one and two, because here's how this whole thing's gonna begin. He's gonna say this. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, so he's using the uh, one thing in the law, in the Old Testament law there as an example. The one who keeps the Sabbath, so who keeps the law, not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing evil. Right, who keeps his hand from doing evil. So he says his salvation will come and his deliverance will be revealed. And so he tells his people, uh, some versions say there, and my deliverance will be revealed. Some versions say my righteousness will be revealed, which is helpful when we see that in verse one, he said, my righteousness will come. And then he says, my right, oh, sorry, he says, I want you to be righteous, he says, keep justice and do righteousness, he says in verse one. That's, that's a command to his people. So he's saying to them, I want you to be righteous. Why does he want them to be righteous? Because of what he says then following. Because my righteousness will be revealed. In other words, I'm gonna reveal it through you. So this is God calling his people to be a counterculture. He's saying, people, my people, I want you to look different than the world around you. I want you to reveal my righteousness, right? so that people can be invited to my table, like I talked about in Isaiah 55. Now look what happens in, now just go down a few verses, in 10 and 11. So he's speaking to his whole people and he's saying, create a counterculture. Reveal my righteousness because my righteousness will be revealed. I'm going to come and I'm gonna do it, so you be about revealing it before I come. And then he says in, verse 56, in chapter 56, verse 10 and 11, this is what he says specifically about his leaders, about the leaders among his people. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. You hear the consumption in that? But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. In other words, what he's saying is the command was reveal my righteousness and what did the leaders do? They didn't do it. 
Instead, they chose a life of consumption and comfort. They chose a life of not teaching the truth and handing it down to God's people, not revealing his righteousness, not saying this is who God is, therefore this is who we must be, right? That's what they chose. And then look at the result of that now in chapter 57. So let's just follow the progression. Reveal my righteousness, no. We're gonna choose a life defined by materialism, by consumption and comfort. And then in chapter 57, verse one, so what happens as a result of that? The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands for the righteous man is taken away from calamity. In other words, what he's saying in in verse 57 there is, here's what happens when God's people don't create a counterculture of righteousness. There are no righteous people left in the culture. There becomes a void of righteous men and righteous women in the culture. There's no one that actually represents the righteousness of God. They, they are vacant from the place in which they live. They're gone. Where did they go? They perished. They were taken away. God actually says in verse two that he, at some point, when he gets so bad, removed them out of a sense of love for them. He's like, you're righteous and you're living in this context is so wicked, I'm just gonna pull you out. But what does, that, what does that do to a culture to have righteous people removed from it? That's, that's troublesome, right? So then the next thing that happens is this, just to follow, again, just to follow along here. In verse 58, chapter 58, verse one, what does God do? What does he do then? He says to Isaiah, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. In other words, what he's saying to Isaiah, what what is God gonna do in light of the fact that the leaders are not representing his righteousness, he's gonna tell Isaiah, you have to go and teach the people what is true and right and good and what is not. In other words, you have to tell them what's true and what's false, Isaiah. Go and cry aloud. Make your voice like a trumpet. Tell them where they've sinned and gone wrong and tell them what righteousness looks like. Do you see it? So this is what he's getting at now in in these chapters is he's talking about a group of people that had failed, his people, who have failed to train themselves in knowing and applying truth. So what do we learn from all this, from those four sections of these chapters? What do we learn from it? A couple things. Number one, Number one, we learn that saying something is true is saying it aligns with God's nature and design. Now, this is important. It's kind of a heady idea, but I just want to explain it and then tell you why it's important, right? When you and I say something is true, if we believe something is true for all people at all times, right, that, again, combating relativism, if we believe that, the reason we believe it is because the thing we're purporting as true is something that reveals the nature of God and the design of God in the world. And because God does not change and because God is eternal, then those truths will never change because God will never, there will never be a day where God changes, therefore what is true changes. Do you see that? If God doesn't change and the things that I say are true are true because they're an expression of his nature and then God's never gonna change, then will this thing ever cease to be true? No, because God doesn't change. What about God ceasing to exist, therefore the truth that is the expression of the nature of God no longer is true because he's no longer there and he doesn't exist. Therefore now truth is relative. Is God ever gonna cease to exist? No. 
Therefore, the things that we hold to be absolutely true are absolutely true at all times for all people because they are derived from the nature and the design of God who is eternal and unchanging. The theological term for unchanging, in case you care, is called immutable. He is immutable. He does not change. Love that about him, don't we? Love it about him. It's why, by the way, we can count on the fact Then he says, if you have faith in Jesus and his crucifixion, his resurrection, you will be saved. You will be. Tomorrow, he won't decide, nope, no longer taking you on that basis. Now you're gonna have to do something different. It's why we don't have to fear that. He's done a work. He is unchanging. It will always be true. So good. So here's the thing. Here's why that's so important, right? It's because the reason we believe what we believe about sexuality is because we believe that God has designed sexuality as an expression of his nature. His triune design, uh, his triune nature is why sex is designed and to be implemented in the way it is. It's not because we just think for sort of arbitrarily, this seems like a good thing to say yes to and, a good, and this thing seems like a good thing to say no to. It's not arbitrary. It's based in the nature of a God who is three in one and says the expression of sexuality that will reveal that is husband and wife together in covenant marriage, sexually expressing themselves to one another and bringing union in their marriage through it. That's why we believe in the vision of sexuality we believe in is because of who God is, not because we just think it's a good idea. Do you see that? Right? The reason we believe uh, the reason we believe in what we believe about in terms of protecting children and the way we think about abortion, right, and rights and laws related to that. The reason we believe that is we, because we believe God has declared that all human life bears his image. And he has declared that it is so, and therefore every life, every life is filled with dignity. It's filled with meaning. It's filled with purpose. And because that's true, it's true because of who God is, not just because we think it's a good idea. And if that's true, then it turns relativism on its head and says, no, 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 there are absolutes in this world. There are absolutes that derive from the very nature of the heart of God and the way he's designed the world to work. And that's why we cling to them. That's why we don't back away from them. That's why we walk in them, because they reveal who God is. That's the first thing we see about the nature of truth here, is that it's an expression of the nature of God, not just an idea that most people agreed with and therefore we called it true. We learned that a failure to train people to know and apply truth has a disintegrating effect on a culture. We saw that in these verses. And we learned that God tells his people to do it among themselves, to train themselves to apply God's truth so that they might look very different than the surrounding culture. See, the soft spot of relativism, the soft underbelly of relativism is its inability to declare anything ultimately good or bad. It's impossible to live that way for long. Do you see that? Eventually you will run out of gas if you're going to fully subscribe to relativism. There's no such thing as something that's always true for all people at all times. You will at some point make a truth claim. You will because you will have to figure out how to live. What am I gonna do in this situation or that situation or this circumstance or that circumstance and I'm gonna have to choose and relativism has no ability to tell you why you should choose what you should choose and no ability to tell someone else that they should choose the same thing. And it's impossible to live that way for long. It just is. That's the soft underbelly of relativism. 
Someone who ascribes that for long enough will be beaten up by it. And when they are, they will want to know, is there a group of people that with humility and grace and love that have chosen to believe in absolutes with great wisdom and and chosen which of those absolutes and not just made arbitrary absolutes but the ones that are actually absolutes and have walked with God in that? Is there a group of people that have ever done that? And if the church is that, they will come flocking to that. Like starving men looking for bread. So what should a church do in that context? What should a church do in that context? Well, I mean, there's, there's so many things we could say. I'll say this. We should raise up our best and brightest to work in academia. I really, I think at a large scale. We, did you know that only two to 5% of professors at top 40 universities claim any faith in Christ? Our, our colleges or universities, they define and they shape our culture because they produce leaders and thinkers. We need more of our best and brightest from in the church to be in those circles, to be shaping, because we have, we have an intellectual argument to make, by the way. Faith is logical and rational and reasonable, and it, it, it holds, it just, it just, it's the worldview that makes the most sense when you really think it through. I'm deeply convicted of that, right? Deeply convicted of that. We also need to teach all of our people to apply general truths in specific situations. Here's what I find. I find many believers who will come to church and they'll be able to repeat back things about God that they hear from the pulpit on a Sunday or maybe in their fellowship group or in their life group. They can repeat back like certain things that are true about God, but somewhere there's a disconnect between that thing that was true about God and how that should be applied into a specific situation. So you ask them about what they think about certain issues within sexuality and there's no ability to connect the nature of God to what choice I should make in this situation. Right? So you get boyfriends and girlfriends who say, what's wrong with living together outside of marriage? Like, Why is that a problem? Because there's no ability to connect who God is, his nature and design into how I live. There's, a, there's just this disconnect that happens. And as a church, we have to be about training you all. And, and by the way, don't just say you, pastor, train me. We have to train ourselves, yes? You have to engage, right? Just listening to me talk up here ain't, ain't gonna do much. I mean, how much of this do you really remember of what I say? Right, let's be honest, We have to train ourselves to be able to know what is true about God and then to apply it into every circumstance and situation. What does the gospel require of me in this situation? How do I live in light of who God is and what he has done and how he's designed the world? This is a lot of work. That's why we've invented training arenas, right? As we've asked you, 90% of you have said, when I go to a training arena, I find something immensely valuable in it every time, right? So go to them. Right, take them in. They're, they're there to help you do exactly what we're talking about here. We, are, we have just done our first version of a leadership development track that is aimed at shaping philosophy, theology, and un- understanding of how to engage with culture. We just finished our first eight-month cohort of that. We're gonna be starting another one in September, which you are all gonna be invited to apply for. Think about, we can't take you all. We're gonna do cohorts at a time because over time we are deeply committed to shaping your worldview and your thinking in such a way that you know how to apply the gospel truth to the circumstances and the situations you apply with. And there's much more that we wanna do. I mean, you can imagine how creative we can get with this, right? 
but it comes down to all of us choosing to say the life of the mind matters. The life of the mind matters. I don't remember who said it, but somebody has, has, has said the quote, the scandal of the, of the evangelical mind is that there isn't much of one. Now that needs to not be true. That needs to be a false quote, right? Evangelicals should not be identified as people who just sort of uh, surge forward on a wave of emotion without much deep thought under the surface. Let me tell you, friends, we need to, that has to be true for us. Okay, now here's the joy of this. We're gonna take communion now, and I just wanna spend some time reflecting. I didn't get through the second one, but I got next week. <laughs> and I don't have to do all the hard work of teeing it up. So we're gonna come to the communion table uh, as we come. So I'm gonna ask the ushers, to, the servers to come because this is honest, is more important, uh, more important, it, it's maybe equally important to the sermon to just have some time to reflect now and to hold the elements in our hand. And you know, if you're new to church, let me explain that the communion elements we represent, we think are symbolic, a symbolic representation of the body and blood of Jesus who gave himself for us so that we might be formed into this church community that we're talking about, the counterculture that we want to have as a church. And so as we hold these elements, we're instructed in a couple things to make sure as we hold them that we don't just take them lightly, that we don't just sort of take the elements and go, yep, I'm good, you know, and drink and eat and act as if um, our life does not need to be examined. And so every time we come to the table, God says, I want you to let the Spirit of God examine your life. And as you do that now, as you do that, friends, I wanna invite you to ask a specific question. You read those eight things. We're gonna talk about the rest of them. But just as you read them, I wonder, if you call this church home, my question to you and, and for myself would be, which of those things have you hindered us from being as a church? I wonder if we would ask the Spirit to show us, have I hindered my church family from being any of these things? And which one is God calling you to help us propel forward in becoming more of? That's probably even more important, right? To identify some of these, I am well equipped to be part of this church family that helps us be propelled forward in being these kinds of things. As you hold the elements, maybe that's a, a place of consideration for you. Let me also say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, just let me encourage you, let the elements pass because uh, in no way would we want you to proclaim with your actions that you believe something that you have yet to come to believe. We invite you to the table of the Lord as he invites you in Isaiah 55 to come to him by faith through his grace. He just invites you, he invites you to come to place your faith in him. And so we're glad that you're here but we invite those who are of faith already to partake of these elements. Let me pray, and then we partake. Oh, one more thing. Remember that, we, that you're gonna get two cups. They're gonna be stacked together. We're gonna have the bread on the bottom and the, and the, the uh, cup on the top, juice on the top, and so we'll partake of those. Just hold them, and we'll partake together, but just recognize that you're grabbing two cups. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We've gotten to look into your word today and to examine it. And we pray that you would cause it to bear fruit in us now as we come to your table. You tell us to examine ourselves, but we also know that we are um, prone to, when we examine ourselves, to limit that examination. And so we pray, even as we are intent on examining ourselves, that, we, that you, Holy Spirit, would come and examine us. That would be our invitation to you. Come and examine our hearts and our minds shape us into the men and women you want us to be and the, the, the body 
the unified one body that you have designed us to be. We come to meet with you now, Jesus. Amen. Servers, if you'd come.